You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Echoes from the Past, Pictures of the Future, Episode 4, with Daniel Pell. Right, good evening everyone, and welcome to our Part four, part four in this series, Echoes from the Past, Pictures of the Future. We're going to go right into our study on the Antichrist, and this is going to be a very exciting journey. So um, buckle up, put your seatbelts on, it's going to be a rough ride. And uh, we are going to allow the Bible to show us, to unmask for us, who is the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. I want to begin with the definition of Antichrist. Antichrist is really, um, the word anti has two meanings. It either can mean in opposition of or instead of. Many times when we think about antichrist, we think about a power that's opposed to Christ. But the word anti can also mean instead of. So we're looking here at a power not only that is opposing Christ, but is actually taking the very place of Jesus Christ. And of course, we can ask ourselves the question, well, who did that from the very beginning? Well, there was a being in heaven... Lucifer, which we read about in a, which we read scriptures about in, in, in our first presentation, I believe it was, where Lucifer rebelled against his maker and he became the arch enemy of Jesus Christ. He became, as it were, as it was, the first antichrist. And yet now he is using an earthly power to achieve the very same thing that he wanted to achieve in heaven. In Isaiah chapter 14, we looked at this verse earlier, but I want to look at it again. Verse 12 to 14 says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Lucifer wanted to be like the Most High, but he didn't want to be like God in his benevolence or in his goodness or in his holiness or his righteousness, but he wanted the power that God had, and he wanted to be the authoritative one in the universe. He was, in essence, the Antichrist. He was against Christ, and he was wanting to put himself in the very place of Christ. He did not receive that position. There was war in heaven and he was cast out of heaven. And now he is seeking to achieve that which he did not achieve in heaven here on earth. Which power is he using here on earth? That's what we're going to discover tonight. But let's have a word of prayer before we go any further to ask the Holy Spirit to be with us in our journey. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can come before you again. Thank you that we can open your word. I pray that you will speak to us through this presentation and that your word may be made clear. For this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to ask you a question. Does Jesus Christ have a twin? I think the answer is very very plain, very clear. No. Jesus Christ is one. He has no twin. There is only one way to the Father. There is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, verse 6. You might remember that verse. It says, I, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus Christ is the way. He has no twin. There is no other way to the Father. And yet, there is an antichrist power in this world today that is instigated and um, uh, motivated by Satan himself to, to proclaim itself as another way to come to the Father, to another way to come to the God of heaven. And we want to be able to unmask that power, and we're going to study the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, which reveals the rise of the Antichrist. That's where we have left off our studies in the book of Daniel. We've looked at the first six chapters. Now we're going to launch into the prophetic part of the book of Daniel, looking at the seventh chapter, which deals with the rise of this Antichrist power in Bible prophecy. But before we go to Daniel chapter 7, I want to look at a couple of other verses in Scripture that tell us something about this power, just to set the stage before we launch into this incredible Bible prophecy. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2, Paul addressing the church of Thessalonica, he writes the following to this church. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as it from us, as though the day of Christ had come, 
Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, what is Paul saying here? Well, there were, obviously there were some people in Thessalonica that believed that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ could be any moment. Any moment Jesus could appear there in the skies. Paul says to them, well, wait, 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 wait. There's something that's going to happen first before Christ returns. What is going to happen first? The son of perdition or the man of sin is going to be revealed. Paul is talking here about none other than the Antichrist power of Bible prophecy. Antichrist with the capital A. This power that would seat itself in the very place of God, that would not just make war against the principles of God and the principles of Christ and the principles of truth, but that would set itself up as the way of truth. Now listen to the further description of this power that Paul gives to the church of Thessalonica and to us as well as believers today. He says, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, that is the man of sin, the son of perdition, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So this power that would rise shortly before the second coming of Jesus Christ would be a power that is described as the son of perdition, the man of sin, and he would not only oppose God he would sit and try to sit in the very place of God. He would set himself in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, that phrase, son of perdition, is an interesting one because there's only one other place in scripture where you will find that same phrase, son of perdition. And that is when it describes the disciple Judas that betrayed his master, that betrayed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas was called the son of perdition. Now, then the character of Judas must tell us a little bit about the character of the Antichrist. Does that make sense? If we can learn something about what Judas did, we, can, we, are, we are getting closer to understand what the Antichrist power is all about and what it's going to do. Now, you will remember that Judas was one of the twelve disciples. He was not some opposing political power that caused Jesus to be taken captive. Neither was he um, some religious power in the days of Jesus, but he was a close friend of Jesus. He was actually a disciple of Jesus. And so betrayal did not come somewhere from the outside, but it came from within. It was not a political power that caused the betrayal of Jesus, but it was an inward betrayal. That says something about what we can expect with the Antichrist power because some people when they talk about, when they hear the word Antichrist, they, they think of some uh, secular, foreign, political power that's opposing the principles of Christianity, the principles of God. Rather, when we're looking at the Antichrist, we're looking at a power from within. We're looking at a wolf with sheep's clothing. We're looking at a power that portrays itself to be Christian, that portrays itself to be in the very circle, inner circle of God, and yet there is a betrayal. It is the son of perdition. And so this is what we're looking at. Now, Paul, in another place in the book of Acts, we read how he warned the church of a coming deceiver, of a coming, of a coming spirit and power that would lead many away from the truths that both he and others had proclaimed during the first century. Look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 and 30. Listen to the words of Paul as he comes to the end of his life. He says, and, and, he's, and he's giving counsel to the church at large. He says, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, also from among yourselves, listen to the language, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So there was going to be deception from where? From within, from among their, themselves, men would come, wolves 
with sheep's clothing that would draw away disciples after themselves. Now with this setting, let us launch into this amazing prophecy found in Daniel chapter 7. And if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Daniel chapter 7 as you can follow along as we go through this amazing prophecy. We're launching now into the prophetic section, the prophetic portion of the book of Daniel. And we're looking at our first prophecy here in Daniel chapter 7. Of course, we've had already one prophecy there in Daniel chapter 2. Um, and you will see in many ways how this prophecy here in Daniel 7 corresponds with that one. And uh, we begin here reading in verse 1. And you can follow along in your Bible. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. So we're taking a step back here because this dream took place in the days of Belshazzar. So that was still the king of Babylon. Medo-Persia had not yet conquered Babylon at this time. We're stepping back and here at that time he had this dream. Verse 2, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. So what does Daniel see in his night vision? He sees four beasts coming up out of the sea. And immediately we have to ask ourselves the question, what do these beasts represent? What does this sea represent? Because in Bible prophecy, we have symbolic language. We're dealing here with pictorial language. And so the Bible interprets itself what these symbols mean. We don't need to pass around a hat and everyone puts in their answer and we shuffle it up and put out, take out one answer and that's what it is. Neither do we have to go and, and, and make up an answer. What we do is we remain in Scripture because the principle of Scripture is that it interprets itself. One scripture interprets another scripture. And so by using one scripture and then other scriptures and by going forth and back, we have an understanding of Bible prophecy. That's the phenomenal thing about Bible study. You don't have to go to all these other books to find out what the Bible means. The Bible is uh, ordained by God, is written and inspired by God to interpret itself. It's beautiful. It's fascinating. Particularly in prophecy, we see this principle reoccurring time and time again. So let's have a look at what this, what a beast represents. In Daniel chapter 7, in the very same chapter, we don't even have to leave the chapter this time, and verse 17 and verse 23, the Bible tells us that a beast represents a kingdom. Let me quickly read these verses to you. Verse 17 says, Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. And a heavenly messenger gives this message to Daniel. The four beasts are four kings. And then in verse 23, it says, Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom on earth. So we don't have to guess as to what the beasts represent. They represent kingdoms, kings or kingdoms. Now, let's look at what sea represents. What does water represent in Bible prophecy? For this understanding, we need to turn to the twin book of the book of Daniel, which is none other than the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 17, you have this incredible prophecy that we're going to study um, in a later presentation. But in that chapter, Revelation 17 and verse 15, it gives us the definition of waters or seas in Bible prophecy. And it talks about the waters representing people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So what we are seeing in Daniel chapter 7 is a nations, four nations, four beasts coming up in a populated area. In an area where there are many people, many nations, many tongues. In a populated area, four nations rising up. Now it also says that the wind was blowing upon the sea as these four beasts came up out of the sea. And wind in Bible prophecy is a symbol of strife, war, and commotion. According to Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 32, the Bible says, Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest, from the farthest parts of the earth. And so we see this wind that blows upon the seas, and we see that out of the seas are coming up four beasts representing four kingdoms. Now let us look at the first kingdom, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 3. Daniel chapter 7, back to our Bibles, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 3, listen to what it says, And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Verse 4, The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. 
So the first beast that Daniel beholds is a lion, but it's not just any lion. I've seen some lions in my life. I've been on mission trips to Africa, and I've seen lions in the wild. But this was not just any lion. This was a lion with wings. I've never seen a lion with wings. So this is definitely a symbolic beast we're talking about here. This is a symbol of a nation, and every detail of that beast says something about the nation it represents. And so we have a beast, a lion with wings, coming up out of the sea. And then something significantly happens to that lion. It raises itself up and it becomes a man. Now, what does this represent? What is a lion with wings? What nation does, it, does this represent? Again, we're not going to pass around a hat and just throw in our ansels and shuffle it and take out the answer. We're going to allow Bible, the Bible to interpret itself. And so what do we do? We go to other texts in the Bible. And do we find a text in the Bible that talks about a lion with wings as a symbol of any other nation? We do find that. As, as a matter of fact, in the book of Jeremiah, which also lived um, at the same time as, as the prophet Daniel. Daniel was taken to captivity. Uh, Jeremiah remained in Jerusalem, and he lived at the same time as the prophet Daniel. He was the prophet, as we learned about earlier, that um, foretold the captivity, and that was a voice of God just prior to the captivity of Babylon. And as he was warning the people of the coming calamity, he portrays and he talks about the king of the north, the king of Babylon, coming and invading Judah and Jerusalem. And listen to how he describes the king of the north, the king of Babylon. In Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 7 and verse 13, it says, The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of nations is on his way, and his chariots like a whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Lion with eagle's wings. Jeremiah here is talking about King Babylon, the king of the north that would come and invade Judah and overthrow Jerusalem. So it is clear from the scripture that the lion with the wings is a representation of, of, of the nation of Babylon. As a matter of fact, archaeologists have done a lot of research and they have found this to be the symbol of Babylon. Before they're in front of their temples and in front of their gates, they would have the lion with the wings. That was the emblem of ancient Babylon. Now Babylon reigned from 605 to 539 BC. And now we're seeing a very important principle of Bible prophecy emerge here. And that is the principle of repetition and enlargement. This is a principle that I'm going to reiterate as we go through these studies, as we journey through the pages of the book of Daniel and Revelation. The principle is as following. God gives a prophecy. And then he gives another prophecy, and in the next prophecy, he will repeat what already has been revealed, and then he will add more information. Now, if you're a good teacher, then this is the way that you will teach, both um, you know, school teachers and college level and university level. Every teacher that you will ask, you will know, and, and, and if they're good teachers, they will know that you don't just say one, once a thing to your student, but you repeat it, and then you enlarge a little bit. You repeat it, again, the same thing and then more information and more information this is how the mind contains truth this is how the mind contains information and it is beautiful to see that this is the exact way that bible prophecy is given to us in daniel chapter 2 we have the cornerstone of bible prophecy the foundational prophecy of that image you remember the image the dream of nebuchadnezzar the hat of gold the chest and arms of silver the thighs of brass the legs of iron the feet of iron and clay representing different kingdoms that would come and fall until the end of the time now, in Daniel chapter 7, we have a repetition of the same kingdoms that are now revealed, but we have greater detail, and we have a different, somewhat different focus in Daniel chapter 7, because Daniel 7 ultimately is bringing us to the rise of the Antichrist power. But it is bringing us through these same nations. And so, in Daniel 2, in the image, the head of gold represented Babylon, and in Daniel chapter 7, the beast, or the lion with the wings, is a representation of Babylon as well. Now let's continue and let's look at the second beast that came up out of the sea. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 6, verse, or verse 5 rather. Daniel 7 and verse 5. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. So a second beast comes up out of the sea and this is not like the first one. It is not a lion with wings, but it is a bear raised up on one side. Take notice of the detail there. And how many ribs in its mouth? Three ribs 
in its mouth. Now, we look at history, and we look at the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, and you will remember that the nation that conquered Babylon was, of course, Medo-Persia. There's a lot of historical account, there's a lot of prophetic account, numerous sources that show us that the kingdom after Babylon was Medo-Persia. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, Medo-Persia is represented by the chest and arms of silver. In Daniel chapter 7, Medo-Persia is represented by the bear that is raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. It reigned from 539 to 331 BC. Now the significance of it being raised up on one side is because the Persians were stronger than the Medes. Remember it was a joint effort to conquer Babylon? And so you had the Medes and the Persians and they combined effort. Now not only did they conquer Babylon or the, the area of Lydia, but they also uh, conquered other nations and they, they overthrew three significant nations at that time, represent, representing the three ribs in the mouth of this beast. But this was not the end of the story. The story continues, the prophecy continues, and a third beast comes on the scene in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 6. Look at this one. This is really a, quite an amalgamation, quite a beast, quite a description. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now, when you think of a lion, you think about a royal animal. It's like the king of the animal world. When you think about a bear, you think about a strong animal. What do you think about when you think about a leopard? When you think about a leopard, you think about a fast creature. And especially when you put four wings on its back. This is like a very fast creature. Now, the kingdom that followed Medo-Persia was none other than Greece. And you will remember that Greece was represented in Daniel chapter 2 by the thighs of brass. Now, Greece was, um, the commander of Greece, or the king of Greece, was Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great conquered the then known world in such a rapid speed that everyone was totally amazed. In a period of eight years on a horseback, they conquered and conquered and conquered to the extent that his men just said, can't we go home? There's nothing more to conquer. He conquered so much at such a rapid speed that it is well represented by a leopard with four wings. Greece reigned from 331 to 168 BC. Now when Alexander the Great died at a young age of about 32 years old, his kingdom was not given to his son because his son was very young. And so what they did is they divided his empire um, amongst his four generals. Now take notice of the detail of the prophecy here. How many heads did the beast have? Four heads, four heads. And the four generals were the following, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. So if you have four boys, you can call them these names. Well, that would be a little bit difficult, I believe. These were the names of the four generals, the four generals that followed Alexander the Great. Now, this was not the end of the story. We continue in our prophecy because take notice of the next beast that appears in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast... Dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, it had huge, what does it say, iron teeth. Now remember the iron legs of the image of Daniel 2. Here a beast with iron teeth. Iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. Now, this beast is not even likened unto anything in the animal kingdom. The first beast, it was a lion. The, f the second beast, it looked like a bear. The third beast looked like a leopard, even though they had you know, special things about them. But this beast is not even likened unto anything in the animal kingdom. It is a dragon, a ferocious dragon, that tramples and, 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 and consumes and destroys everything in its path. Now, what do we know about this dragon? It had ten horns upon its head. And of course, the nation that followed Greece, the great nation that followed Greece was none other than Rome. Rome represented in Daniel 2 with the legs of iron and in Daniel 7 by the beast with the iron teeth, reigning from 168 BC to approximately 476 AD, the long reign of pagan Rome. And yet what happened to Rome? Remember in Daniel chapter 2, we've discussed also what happened to Rome. Rome was not conquered by one nation, but Rome fragmented. Rome was divided by corruption within and attacks from without. It fell apart. 
It fell apart over a, over, over a period of years. And this is the division um, of, um, of Rome uh, during that time, the, the West, um, West Europe as we know it now, and the division of the various tribes. It's interesting to note that the fourth beast had ten horns on its head. And those ten horns are a representation of the division of the Roman Empire into ten nations. Now, this is not just some guesswork either, because in Daniel 7 itself, it tells us what the ten horns represent. If you go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, it says the ten horns are ten kings. So the ten horns upon the fourth beast are ten kings, the division of the Roman Empire. And indeed, there were ten kings. And yet, three kings, three of those kings are now extinct. Those are the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. And we're going to come back to that because the prophecy tells us what happened to those three horns. Now, take notice, as you have the division of the Roman Empire, we go to the next scene now, and a little recap here before we go any further. We have the lion with the wings representing Babylon. We have the bear raised up on one side with the three ribs, Medo-Persia. Then we have followed by the third beast, the leopard with the four heads and the four wings representing the rapid conquering nation of Greece. And then we have the ferocious beast that tramples upon everything else, and that's the iron monarchy of Rome. And then the ten horns upon the fourth beast, the division of the Roman Empire. What happens next? Take notice of Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, and verse 8. Daniel chapter 7, and verse, no, not verse 8, verse, yes, verse 8. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. So what goes on here? As Daniel is looking at the fourth beast, as he's looking at the ten horns on the fourth beast, a little horn comes up, and the three horns, three of those ten horns, are uprooted. They have to make place for this little horn which comes on the scene. And when you look at the description of what this little horn does, you will find out that this little horn is none other than the Antichrist power of Bible Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you go down to verse 25, listen to a little bit of the description here of what this little horn will do, what this power will do. According to verse 25 in Daniel chapter 7, he shall speak pompous words or great words against the Most High, against God. What else shall he do? Well, the second part of the verse says, he shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and laws, and the saints will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So this power, this Antichrist power, speaking great words against God, he's persecuting the saints of God, the followers of God, and he's even trying to change the very laws of God, the times and laws of God. What a power. The Antichrist power of Bible Scripture. Well, let's identify this power because, again, we just don't want to guess here. We want to be able to put all the identification marks of Daniel 7 together. And I believe as we put them all together, it will be no doubt as to what this power represents. We have already noted that the little horn comes out among the ten horns. In other words, we can expect the Antichrist to rise somewhere in the region of the divided empire of Rome. So if you have someone say, yeah, the Antichrist rose in Asia, or the Antichrist rose in Australia, or in America, or in Canada, you can say, well, based on Bible prophecy, based on Daniel chapter 7, the Antichrist is to rise in the fallen Roman Empire. In other words, this part of the world, that's where we're looking at here. Well, let's put the identification marks together. It arose among the ten horns, or it came out of the Roman Empire, it arose after the ten horns. In other words, after the Roman breakup, the Roman Empire breaks up. It was different from the ten horns. And we see very clearly that it was not only a political power, but a religious power. It was persecuting the saints of the Most High. It was speaking against God. We're not talking here just about some political power. It's much larger than that. This is a religious power as well. And last but not least, it displaced three horns. 
So we're looking here at a power that made war on the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, the three horns, the three tribes that are now extinct. Well, if we put all these characteristics together, it's really not hard to find out which power this is talking about. There was only one power that came up out of the Roman Empire after the breakup of the Roman Empire that was not only a political power but and a religious power and that made war on the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, and that is none other than the papacy or papal Rome. Rome basically has two phases. The first phase of Rome is pagan Rome, but pagan Rome is followed by papal Rome or the Church of Rome. Now before I go any further in this presentation, I really want to make it clear that we're not here to point fingers at people or to accuse or um, you know, to, to, to um, uh, attack any people. What we're looking at here is identifying a system from Bible prophecy. And it's very important because, you know, you, there might be a lot of people that you know or maybe even yourself that belong to the papal church. And you think, how can you say that the papal church is the antichrist of scripture? I know a lot of loving people in that church. I know they do a lot of good things. And I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. What we're doing here is we're identifying a system that has diverted from the path of truth. As a matter of fact, I myself come from a Roman Catholic home. My parents were Roman Catholics, and, and I know from experience that many Roman Catholics are loving people. And, but what the Bible identifies is a system that has diverted from the truth and that is teaching things that are contrary to Christ, a power, a church power that has put itself in the very place of Christ. That's what we're looking at here. And so let us continue in our journey as we see if these identification marks really um, are watertight because we don't want to make such claims without really being able to look closely at the evidence of Scripture. And there's more evidence than what you have just seen. And so we turn our attention to history. Now what does history tell us? Uh, this is taken from the Professor of History, University of Rome. It says, To the succession of the Caesars, which were, of course, the rulers of pagan Rome, came the succession of the what? Of the pontiffs in Rome. So we have the Caesars followed by the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine, which was a pagan emperor, left Rome, he gave his seat to the, gave his seat to the pontiff. Now, Stanley's History, page 40, says, The popes filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from paganism. The papacy is but the ghost of the diseased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. Now, I want you to take notice of that language there because it's, so, um, it's describing it in a very vivid way. Because what happened is in the days of Constantine, which was an emperor living, you know, 3rd, 4th century, he looked at his Rom, and in his Rom, in his kingdom, he had a lot of pagans, and he also had a, quite a number of Christians, and the Christians were becoming more and more and more. And he didn't, and in order to solve the problem of these disputes and, and, and um, uh, wars against between the Christians and the pagans, he decided to make a political move and to blend the two together. And he became a Christian himself. Now, he became a Christian with quote marks because what he actually did is he brought paganism into Christianity and blended the two, mixed them together so everyone would be happy. A real political move. Do we uh, see some of those moves today? Yes, we do. Political moves. And that's exactly what happened. And so what was the consequence of that is that now the Church of Rome, which is now stepping in the place of the Caesars and the power of pagan Rome, was now brought to the forefront. And Rome became the capital in which we have, of course, the papacy or the Vatican as we know it today. Very interesting to see this both from Bible prophecy and from history. Now in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, what would the little horn do again? The little horn would speak pompous words or great words against the Most High. So this power, the papacy, is speaking against the very truth of God. Now, of course, we have to see if, that, if those claims really, is it really true? Is, is that really the fact? Now, we want to we want to go a little bit now in another direction. We want to go to the book of Revelation and we want to look if there's any more identification marks that we can find in the book of Revelation that correspond with what we have discovered in the book of Daniel. Because remember, the book of, da the book of Revelation is the twin book of the book of Daniel. And the prophecies that we discover in the book of Daniel are really um, confirmed and enlarged. You have the principle of repetition and enlargement in the book of Revelation. 
And so we turn our attention to Revelation chapter 13. Now, Revelation was not written by the prophet Daniel, but was written by the disciple John that was exiled to the island of Patmos, and there he wrote the visions that he received. And in Revelation chapter 13, I want you to take notice of this vision that appears before John. Revelation chapter 13, and I'm beginning to read in verse 1. It says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw, I want, to, I want you to listen to the description here, it's fascinating. The beast that I saw was like a leopard, his feet were the feet of a bear, his mouth the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now in that language, is, does that remind you of anything? That reminds us of what? Of Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, we have four beasts. We have a lion with wings. We have a bear raised up on one side with three ribs. We have the leopard with four heads and four wings. And then we have the ferocious fourth beast that cannot be even likened unto anything from the animal kingdom. The dragon, we could say. The four beasts of Daniel 7 are now, in Revelation chapter 13, amalgamated into one beast. And in Revelation chapter 13, this beast comes up out of the sea. The very same scene in Daniel chapter 7. The beasts are coming up out of the sea. Now, in Revelation chapter 13, when we read these, this text, we do not have to guess again what a beast represents because we already learned that in the book of Daniel. So you need to take the book of Daniel and Revelation together. Many people don't do that and they try to understand the book of Revelation and they come up with all these interpretations many times based on the headlines of the news rather than going back in the echoes of the past and finding out from the history what these symbols mean. And so it is vital, it is important, it is crucial, it is imperative to take the text to compare it with each other and to make sound conclusions based upon the echoes of the past and the pictures of the future. So in Revelation chapter 13, we have this power which reminds us of Daniel chapter 7 and so it brings us right back to Daniel chapter 7. And what you find out is when you look at the characteristics of this beast in Revelation 13, you will find out that it has very similar characteristics than the little horn in Daniel 7. And then you will find out that the power represented by the little horn in Daniel 7 is the very same power that is represented here as a beast in Revelation chapter 13. Well, let's look at a couple of the characteristics or the identification marks of this beast in Revelation chapter 13. And in verse 2, I read it already, but let me read it again. It says, The beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So he received his authority from the dragon. Now in Daniel chapter 7, the dragon, or the fourth beast, was pagan Rome. Do you remember that? pagan Rome. And so it received its seat and authority from pagan Rome. And that's exactly what history reveals. The papacy received its authority from none other than pagan Rome. Again, let us confirm that with history. I think I have a quote here. Um, this quote we already read, but let's just, let me just read it quickly again. It says, To the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff. So it was Constantine what really crowned the papacy with authority and power. He transferred his capital from Rome to Count Constantinople and gave full authority to the popes in Rome, to the papacy in Rome. Now, when you look a little bit at the development of Christianity throughout the ages, it really leads us, it leads us up to the arrival of the Antichrist. During the first century, when Jesus... Um, left his disciples, he sent them out into the world to preach the gospel and to baptize many as they would teach them and instruct them in the ways of the Lord. There was great power that attended the work of the early disciples. They went forth preaching the gospel. You read about that in the book of Acts and many other accounts throughout the letters of Paul. Now, during the first century, the church at large was a pure church. It was focused on truth. It was moving forward unitedly. But then you, and then you come to like the second century and you see how persecution arose against the church and how many, many um, Christians lost their lives as martyrs. The blood was flowing 
um, as they were put to death in so many gruesome ways um, by pagan Rome at that time. And yet, uh, there was one author that wrote and said, the blood of the martyrs was like the seed of the gospel. So the more they killed, the more they would, they would, they would come and spring up. And the gospel continued to be preached throughout the second century. But then you come to the third and fourth century and things started to change. This was in the time of Constantine where he tried to blend together Christianity and paganism. And now a new church was erected, a new church was raised that did not hold on to the teachings of scripture any longer, but added the traditions of man. As a matter of fact, many of those traditions that were added to the church were directly coming from paganism. And so at one time they would worship the pagan gods and now they would be worshiping saints. And so you'd have the saint worship that had taken the place of pagan worship. They worshipped, for example, many, many objects, and now they would worship idols in the papal church. And so uh, you would have a holy water and holy candles and all these things that really derive their origin from paganism now manifested in the Church of Rome. That was going on during the 3rd and 4th century. We could call it a time of compromise. Now especially in the days of Constantine. Now, not only was there a compromise, and not only was a change uh, occurring in Christianity, but it got even worse than that. Because now the so-called Christian power that had now been um, enthroned in Rome became the persecuting power towards those that kept on to the truth of Scripture. And so not only was there a compromise, but there was ultimately a Christian power that now had its seat in Rome that became the persecuting power. Look at Revelation chapter 13 and verse 7. Listen to what it says. It says, It was granted to him, talking about this beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So it was granted to, for him to make war against the saints. This was the very same thing that we read about in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 21. The little horn also made war against the saints. Do you see the correspondence there between the little horn and the beast in Revelation chapter 13? It's clearly talking about the same power. Not only does it tell us that this would be a persecuting power, but even Revelation chapter 13 goes further than that. It gives us an period that this power would persecute, a time period, a time prophecy. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 5, listen to, listen to verse 5, it says the following, and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. So this papal power would reign for a period, according to the Bible, of 42 months. Now, in Bible prophecy, we have symbolic language. Of course, we're not looking here at a literal beast. We're looking here at a symbolic beast that represents a power, a nation, a kingdom, um, we're looking here not at literal time, we're looking here at symbolic time. And so as you look at the principle in Bible prophecy to interpret time, you come across two very interesting verses. One is found in Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6, and the other is found in Numbers chapter 14 verse 34. You can go back and read that if you would like. It's interesting. It talks about a day representing a year. And so in Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. Now, we're going to look at numerous Bible prophecies throughout this series in which we're going to apply this principle. And you're going to see that each and every time the principle, it, it stands. It stands the test. So right here, if we take this test of 42 months and we take the day-year principle and we apply it to the 42 months, we end up with 1,260 days, 30, uh, a month of 30 days, and a biblical month has 30 days, um, times 42, times the 42 months would be um, 1,260 days, prophetic days, or we would say 1,260 literal years. Now, was there a period that the papacy ruled for 1260 years. Well, let's go to history again. And this quote is, uh, uh, tells us the following. Figilius ascended the papal chair in 538 AD under the military protection of Belisarius. This is found in History of the Christian Church, Volume 3, page 327. Now, if you start counting from that date, 538 AD, 
and you add 1260 years, you end up in the year, <coughs> excuse me, 1798 AD. Now, what happened in 1798 AD? In 1798 AD, the papacy and the pope at that time was taken captive by the French commander, uh, Bertillier, which was sent by Napoleon to abolish the connection of church and state. Now, think about that. A church can say what it wants, and you can decide whether you obey or not. But when the church is united with the state, then things, have, then things change. Because then what the church says is what the state enforces with its law and with its military. And then you better obey or you're in trouble. And so what happened during these 1260 years is that the Roman church was united with the kings of the earth or with the state. And from 538 till 1798, for a period of 1260 years, we had a severe persecution that took place against those that followed the word of God. As a matter of fact, during this time period, Bibles were publicly burnt. And it was not allowed to be even to, to preach or to teach the word. The teaching of the word was to happen in Latin, and the common people were not to own a Bible. And even owning a Bible, you could lose your life. It was a severe time of persecutions against those saints, against those people that kept faithful to the word of God. It was also during this time period that we read about the rise of the Reformation. We think about the Reformation under uh, Martin Luther and Swingley and, 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 and Melanchthon and many of these men of faith that stood up at that time and that resisted the authority of Rome and would rather put their feet on a firm platform of truth revealed in God's scripture. Many of them lost their lives. Many of them were burnt. Many of them were, uh, were, were, were persecuted. They were thrown in dungeons and prisons and, and they stood firm because they believed that the word of God was the final authority for man. Now also during this time, in the northern regions of Italy, you had a people by the name of the Waldensians, and they lived in the mountainous areas of northern Italy and southern Switzerland. And here they would uh, build uh, schools, simple structures, where they would educate young people in the word of God and send them out as missionaries at this time where it was not allowed to even own a Bible. As a matter of fact, what they would do is they would take the scriptures and they would copy it by hand, and they would put it in their clothes, and they would travel as business people. And when they would, and tradesmen, and when they would come in contact with a person and they felt that they could trust this person, they would take out and they would share the scriptures with them. Many of them were caught, though, and they lost their lives. As a matter of fact, a year ago, I had the privilege of preaching in Italy, and I took a couple of days off, and I, and I visited some of these areas, and it's absolutely beautiful to travel through these mountainous areas where you still have a lot of the monuments of this period of the Waldenses that lived during that time and that stood firm for truth in those dark ages. Now, we fast forward a little bit and we come to the close of this reformation, or we come to the, the close of this further towards the end of this um, uh, period of time. And we have, of course, Martin Luther that stood forth uh, firmly declaring the truth of God's word and firmly also exposing the errors of Rome. And he um, wrote down 95 theses against the Church of Rome, against the apostate teachings, and he nailed it there to the church door at Wittenberg, very uh, well-known um, chapter of history. Martin Luther said the following. Now remember, at one point of time, he was a Catholic monk, and yet when he discovered the truths of prophecy, and when he discovered the apostasy of the church and the corruption of the church, he said the following. He said, Already I feel greater liberty in my heart, for at last I know the Pope is Antichrist and that his throne is that of Satan himself. And of course, through Martin Luther and many others, the truths of righteousness by faith, justification by faith alone were given to the Christian church. That we are justified, not by works, not by penance, not by paying church to Rome, but by confessing our sins, not to an earthly priest, but to Jesus Christ himself. The church of Rome was earning a lot of money. They would go around and they, they would say, well, if you give money to the church, your loved one will, come, will get out of purgatory. We'll send them straight to heaven. You know, they believed that they were burning in purgatory. But if, if money would drop into the treasury of the church, they said the moment that the coin drops to the bottom of the treasure box, that's the moment that that soul of your loved one is moving into heaven. See, these were the teachings of Rome during those days. And the teachings of Rome went on and on. The people were becoming poor. They were oppressed by Rome. Rome was becoming powerful and mighty and building. And then 
some humble men stood up and said, the truth of the word tells us that we are saved by grace. That we are saved by grace alone, that we can trust in Jesus Christ and that he sets us free. We do not need to confess our sins to an earthly priest. We can go to Jesus Christ. And this truth was preached with great power. You might remember the, uh, the story of Martin Luther as he appeared before the Diet at Worms. It's an incredible history. And how he stood before the princes of, um, of Germany and he proclaimed the word of God. He says, I stand upon the word of God. And, I, if, and if, you cannot, uh, if you cannot convince me by, any, by, by, by anything else than the word, here I stand. Here I stand. Those were the words of Martin Luther. And you know, you and I can make that same decision to say, here I stand upon the word of God. I make the word of God my guide in my life. Of course, there were many others that gave their lives for the cause of truth. Now, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3, we read that this beast would receive a deadly wound. Verse 3 says the following, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So first the beast receives a deadly wound, and then shortly after that, or the next thing that we learn about in the scripture, is that the mortally wound is healed. Now, when did the beast receive a mortal wound, or when did that period end of that oppression of Rome? Well, if we look at the period of the 1260 years that began in 538 A.D., and we count 17, and we count 1260 years, we end up in the year 1798. Now, what happened in 1798? Church History, page 24, tells us the following. The murder of a Frenchman in Rome in 1798 gave the French an excuse for occupying the eternal city and putting an end to, pap- to the papal temporal power. The aged pontiff himself was carried off into exile to Valence. The enemies of the church rejoiced. The last pope, they declared, had resigned. So that uh, unity of uh, of the church and the state that had existed for 1260 years was now abolished in the year 1798. And it was done by France um, under Napoleon's reign at that time. The pope was taken captive. And in 1798, it says, Hebrew Che made his his entrance into Rome, abolished the papal government, and established a secular one. That's exactly what happened. Rome had seen its last day. That's what appeared to be at that time. And yet, what does Bible prophecy tell us? According to verse 3, the next sentence says, its deadly wound would be healed. Its deadly wound would be healed. In other words, the papal power received the deadly wound in 1798, but it was not going to remain obscure. It was going to come back into power. Now, as we look at more recent history, uh, you'll remember that Mussolini and Gasparri signed a historic Roman pact, and this is taken from the San Francisco Chronicle, a newspaper on February 11, 1929, and listen to what it says. It says, The Roman question tonight was a thing of the past. And the Vatican was at peace with Italy. In affixing the autographs to the memorial, and listen to the language here, document healing the wound, extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. So there was a political alliance that took place in 1929 that gave power again to the papacy, to the Vatican. And what we are really seeing, according to Bible prophecy, this power is again healing, the wound is being healed. And gradually and slowly, this power is getting more and more influential in our world today. And of course, we we look at the last pope, uh, Pope John Paul II, that traveled extensively to many countries and nations and that um, really um, (coughs) made the Church of Rome prosper and grow. And when um, Pope John Paul II died, you might remember seeing, or even I remember watching it on television, the funeral, and how there were several American presidents and former presidents that were kneeling there before the casket of the Pope. You know, a Protestant nation like America kneeling before the casket of the Pope. Now, that you know, shows us that the Protestant world is really no longer protest- protesting. You see, the word Protestant comes from the word to protest. It seems to, to stand against the powers of Rome which have replaced, tradi- replaced the word of God with the traditions of man. Many today say, I'm a Protestant, but you need to ask them the question, what are you protesting against? And many are not protesting any longer. Now, 
many churches, what we're seeing today is an ecumenical movement where churches are uniting together and coming back on the authority of Rome. That's exactly what we're seeing happening in our world today, and it was prophesied in Scripture. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3 tells us that this power would, not only would its deadly wound be healed, but the last part of the verse says that all the world would marvel and follow the beast. It would be, in other words, a worldwide system of worship. And in verse 3, it tells us that all the world marveled and followed the beast. And when we look at our world today, the largest denomination, the largest uh, power that is widely spread in, in, in the Christian world is, is, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, represented in... Um, most countries of the world, if not all countries of the world, has some representation of this church, of this structure. Authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Certainly these words of prophecy are fulfilling before our very eyes. Now, according to prophecy, it would speak words of blasphemy. Revelation chapter 13, verse 5, it says, It was given him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Now, what does it mean to speak blasphemy? Let us let the Bible interpret what that means. If we go back to the book of Mark in the second chapter, and we look at Jesus there, and during his life here on earth, he claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. And of course, Jesus had that authority as being the Son of God. But take notice what happened there as he forgave the sins of a man, of a paralytic that he met at that time. He said, your sins, son, your sins are forgiven you. And then some of the scribes that were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, they said the following, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the religious leaders there did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They protested and they said, Hey, Jesus, you can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Of course, we know that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins as the Son of God. But the definition of speaking blasphemy, according to Scripture, is to take the authority to forgive sins. Now, there's something else that defines blasphemy. Because in another place, Jesus claimed to be God. In John chapter 10 and verse 31 and 33, it says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. So another definition of blasphemy is when you, being a man, being a person, make yourself God. Now, of course, we know again that Jesus had all the right to say this because he was God in the flesh. And yet, there is an earthly power that is identified here in prophecy, in Revelation, that not only claims to forgive sins, but also claims to sit in the very place of God here on earth. Now, let us allow the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church, to answer these claims for themselves. And so this is taken from Roman Catholic sources, and this is taken from a book called The Catholic Priest, pages 78 and 79. Listen to what it says. It says, Seek where you will through heaven and earth, and you will find but one created being who can forgive the sinner. That extraordinary being is the priest, the Catholic priest. So there's only one that can forgive sin, and that is the priest. That is, my friends, speaking blasphemy. Now, uh, what was the other definition of blasphemy? To claim that you are God, right? Now, look at this claim, uh, also taken from Catholic sources. This is taken from Dignity and Duties of the Priest, volume 12, page 2. God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest and either not to pardon or to pardon. In other words, the priest is above God. Do you see that? According as they refuse or give absolution, the sentence of the priest precedes and God subscribes to it. So the Roman Catholic Church says the priest is above God. The priest sets the course and God subscribes to it. Here another one taken from a Catholic dictionary. It says the Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God and the vicar of God. These are very strong claims, and claims that we need to test with Scripture, especially with the prophetic word, and we see that the prophetic word prophesied of these powers and what they would claim to be and how we are to turn away from these earthly powers to the word of God because we need to rekindle the Reformation today. 
the Reformation has been dying out, and there needs to be a rekindling of the Reformation, a guiding of people to the truths of God's Word, knowing that they are saved by grace alone, knowing that they are saved by Jesus Christ and that they can come to Him as they are. Here another um, source, uh, a Catholic source, the Encyclopedia, uh, cyclical letters of Leo the Thirteenth. Uh, uh, it says, "We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty." It's very bold language. Now let's go to our last identification mark for tonight before we close, and that is that the name, the number of its name, would be six six six. And maybe you've heard about this number six six six. There's you know songs that have been written about it, and you know you hear it sometimes here or there. But what is it, what is really this number all about? Well, in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 18, the Bible says the following. This is the last verse in Revelation chapter, eight, uh, chapter 13. Uh, the last verse there, verse 18, it says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So, do you want to have wisdom tonight? Do you want to have understanding tonight? Then we are to calculate the number of the beast. And the Bible says it's the number of a man. And his number is 666. Well, in, um, when you look at the papacy, of course, every characteristics, every identification mark has to meet the test. Because, you know, you have some people say, well, you know, I have this <coughs> person that I believe is Antichrist that has the name 666. Well, did that person reign for 1260 years? Did that system reign for 1260 years? Did he receive a deadly wound? Did all the other identification marks match and usually that's not the case so we, we can't just go on one identification we have to go on them all together now how does this match up then to this power the papal power now listen to this from this is taken from our sunday visitor it says the official title of the papacy is vicarius vilidae or son vicar of the son of god or the place Standing in the place of God. That's what the vicar means. Vicar of the Son of God. Now, the official title of the papacy, this is, the Latin, this is a Latin uh, phrase, a Latin word, vicarius vile dei. Now, in Latin, you will know that a number or a letter has a number value. I'm sure you learned that in school, how, you know, v, represent, uh, is, v is, a, is a, uh, pointing to the number five and so on. You have these numerical uh, values of these letters. And you count up the name Vicarius Vili Dei, and you will come exactly to 666. Now, this is just another identification mark, which you can add to all the rest of them in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, there are even other names that the papacy claims that also count up to 666. There are several of them. So it, it, it really adds up to the evidence of scripture here uh, that we're looking into tonight. Now, what I want you to take notice of as we come to a close of this presentation is that according to Bible prophecy, this power, this stately power, this church-state power, will one day on this, on this world try to rule. A new Roman Empire, a new world order is on the horizon. And yet God has also promised us in Scripture and in prophecy that there's going to be a new reformation. There's going to be people that will stand firmly upon the truths of Scripture and that will hold forth the light of God's Word. The Bible says that the Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And you and I can decide to take the Word of God and allow it to be the lamp and light in our lives. This power in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13, it tries to be the twin of Jesus Christ. It tries to put itself in the place of Jesus Christ. It tries to provide another way to come to God the Father. And yet Jesus Christ said, there is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Who do you choose tonight? Do you choose Jesus or do you choose Rome? That was the choice when Jesus was about to be crucified. And this is the choice for us today. As you look at Revelation chapter 13, you find clearly that it is a counterfeit of everything Jesus ever did. When you look at Jesus, he came up out of the waters of the river Jordan when he was baptized by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. He came up out of the waters before he began his public ministry. What do we see this power doing? Revelation chapter 13 tells us that this beast power John sees this beast power rising up out of the sea. It is a counterfeit of Jesus coming up out of the waters after his baptism. Jesus went around ministering and healing and preaching and teaching and casting out demons and healing the sick. 
causing the blind to see, causing the deaf to hear, preaching that the kingdom of God had come, and he did this for a period of three and a half years. From his baptism to his crucifixion was three and a half years, or 42 months. What did we, what did we learn about this beast power that came up out of the sea? It would continue for how long? For 42 months. Of course, that's prophetic months, but the parallel is nonetheless striking. The parallel is striking. Jesus, at the end of the three and a half years, was crucified. He received a deadly wound. What happened to this beast power? According to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3, it would also receive a deadly wound. Do you see how it's counterfeiting everything that Jesus does? Jesus rose from the grave. The grave could not hold him, and he came out victoriously. The deadly wound was healed. And then we learn that in Revelation chapter 13, this beast, this antichrist power, its deadly wound was healed as well. After Jesus' deadly wound was healed and after he rose from the grave, people worshipped him and people went forth proclaiming his gospel into the world. And this beast power, this antichrist power, the papal power, will also regain its power and cause many to worship him. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, the Bible says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, talking about the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb. My friends, the question for us tonight is where is your name written? If your name is written in the book of life, you will not be found worshiping this earthly power. You will be found worshiping Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I appeal to you tonight to take that stand, to like Martin Luther say, here I stand, here I stand upon the scriptures. This is my guide. This is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. And I make it the counsel for my life. I make it the direction for my life. And I know that a great blessing will follow because God has promised to bless those that are faithful to him. Let's pray in closing. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for being with us tonight. We want to thank you for the prophecy that we've been able to study in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13. Lord, we uh, see the incredible things that have happened in the past and we see also the um, amazing things that are on the horizon. And Lord, we pray that like the reformers and like the uh, Waldenses and, and, and all those that have been faithful in the past, that you, we will also be found faithful, that you will give us the strength to stand upon your word and your word alone, and that your word may be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for the assurance that Jesus Christ is with us by faith and that we can follow him wherever he leads. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always... You can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.